the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow deadheads, welcome to season eight of the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. Thank you very much for tuning in. In this episode of the good old Grateful Dead cast, we continue our exploration into the Grateful Dead's 1973 studio album, Wake of the Flood. We're well into side one at this point as we dive into a staple of the Grateful Dead's catalog, Road Jimmy. It's the 50th anniversary of the Grateful Dead's Wake of the Flood, and to celebrate this, Rhino has a grand 50th anniversary release, which includes the original album remastered, some really cool early demos of songs from the album, and six songs from a live show at McGaw Memorial Hall at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, from November 1st, 1973. There will be special vinyl as well as standard black vinyl, CDs and digital versions available. More info and pre-orders are happening right now over at dead.net. Head on over to dead.net slash deadcast and check out all of our past episodes, including the complete seasons one through seven. You can link from there to your favorite podcasting platforms so you can listen how you like to listen. Please help this podcast by subscribing, hitting that like button, sharing an episode on your social media, and if the spirit moves you, leave us a review. Thank you very much. We have transcripts from many of your favorite Deadcast episodes available for your reading pleasure. We recently uploaded Season 1, so head on over to dead.net slash deadcast dash index and check them out. Thanks to everyone who has left their stories at stories.dead.net. Do you have any stories about Wake of the Flood or any of the songs on it? We're looking for them now. Got a tale about the first time you heard Eyes of the World? Or a wild tour yarn about that version of Let It Grow that flipped your wig? No story too big or too small. Record them over at stories.dead.net and you may just hear yourself on the Deadcast. There's an option to write your story there, but if possible, please record yourself telling the story. It's much more compelling, and we can actually use the audio in the deadcast. If you need longer than the time allotted, leave a second one or a third recording. Thank you very much. Row Jimmy is one of the songs from Wake of the Flood that became a Grateful Dead staple, with the band playing the song 273 times throughout their career since its debut in February of 1973. Featuring some of Robert Hunter's best lyrical work, Row Jimmy has plenty of double twists in the music as well. We'll dive into both the lyrics and the trickier-than-it-sounds music in this episode. Jesse Jarno has his decoder ring, and it's set to stun. There's no question that Row Jimmy is a classic Grateful Dead song, beloved by many deadheads, played often by the band and the offshoots that have followed. Grateful Dead archivist and legacy manager David Lemieux 
when it was perfect and all the pieces fell into place, nothing in a first set was better, really. Up there with Birdsong for me. I love that I got to hear Jerry play slide guitar on it. You know, Jerry didn't play slide guitar very much at all. So to get to hear Jerry play some slide usually was really great. a bit of the Winterland June 8th, 77 version, probably familiar to many, now on the Winterland 1977 box. And, as much as Road Jimmy is a classic Grateful Dead song, it can also be a confusing song. My first show, it was in your face, Hartford 1987, and it opened with Midnight Hour into a massive cold rain and snow, CC Rider, and even when push comes to shove, Brother Esau... But there was a road Jimmy in there. And that was the moment. That was in 87. I'd always liked the song, but didn't quite, I won't even say, I'm not gonna say understand it. I understand, but I didn't know what to make of it. Dude, like, what is this? And it was at that show where I just was so enveloped by the sound and being in there with 15,000 people at the Hartford Civic Center that it made sense to me. And I said, okay, this song. And then I started really seeking it out in a first set. show is now Dave's Picks 36. It's an excellent version, and I can see how it unlocked the song for young Dave Lemieux. I certainly didn't get Road Jimmy at first, and I know it's not an uncommon experience. It seems like not even the dead themselves totally got it at first. During the band's 1976 touring hiatus, Jerry Garcia told the journalist, I really loved Road Jimmy Row. That was one of my favorite songs of ones that I've written. I loved it. Nobody else really liked it very much. We always did it, but nobody liked it very much, at least in the same way I did. There's something about it that's like the musical version of one of those magic eye optical illusions. Today, we're going to exercise our third ear and focus in on Roe Jimmy. A classic Grateful Dead song, sure, but what kind of classic Grateful Dead song? That's the way it's been in town Ever since they In January 1973, Jerry Garcia did something he never did again. 
he wrote more than a half dozen new songs at once. A few months later, around the time the band was recording Wake of the Flood, he described the experience to Cameron Crowe as a spasm. He added, Sometimes I can just crank them out and other times, nothing. Like I could have a spurt in which I'd write four new songs in a week, and in the next six months I wouldn't be able to put two words together. It's that kind of thing. Something had changed since the last time Garcia had cranked out batches of songs in early and late 1971. He had a home studio installed. That's from an incredible unlabeled tape reel that Mountain Girl found in 2016 and sent to our friend David Gans for digitization, who discovered a complete demo session for nearly all the songs that Jerry Garcia brought to the Grateful Dead in early 1973, featuring Jerry not only singing and playing his parts, but often including bass lines, keyboards, second guitar, and drum machine. Apparently recorded in a home studio in a rear building behind the house that he, Mountain Girl, and their family moved into in Stinson Beach in 1971. There are no signs of other home demos from this period just yet, but I want to believe. Wake up to find out that you are the eyes of the We're recording close to two albums worth of material, Garcia told Cameron Crowe, with a plan to distill it into one record, leaving the rest in the can. The tape contains early versions of China Doll, They Love Each Other, Wave That Flag, also known as U.S. Blues, Eyes of the World, Here Comes Sunshine, an unfinished bluesy instrumental, and Row Jimmy. Row Jimmy has confounded and delighted generations of deadheads. Listening to classic versions of the song, there's an influence that's seemingly quite obvious, though it might not be exactly what it seems. And in turn, might provide a key to understanding why Row Jimmy is such a slippery song. Please welcome back Scott Metzger of Joe Russo's Almost Dead. To me, Row Jimmy is like a reggae feel to it, but it's not like anybody is back there doing the upbeat chicka chickas on the guitar or anything to make it overly reggae. Don't hang your head in nothing too tight, In some ways, it seems simple that Road Jimmy was Jerry Garcia's attempt to channel reggae, which he'd soon be singing in his sideband with Merle Saunders. There are those that have wondered if the title Road Jimmy is a nod to Jimmy Cliff, singer and star of Harder They Come. I've always thought, man, that Road Jimmy would have fit perfectly on the Harder They Come 
soundtrack. I would love to hear Jimmy Cliff sing that song. Like I could just totally, I could see it so easily. totally sure Jerry Garcia had heard reggae yet when he wrote Row Jimmy. Certainly it had been popular in Jamaica for a few years, and there's a chance it made it to the dead's ears in that window. It was in 1973 that reggae made it to American shores for real. Jamaica's first feature is America's number one cult movie. Jimmy Cliff, an existential hero as good as anything James Dean or Brando portrayed in the 50s. Crawdaddy. The Harder They Come opened in the UK in 1972, but didn't make it to the United States until it opened in New York, coincidentally, the same weekend in early 1973 that Road Jimmy debuted in California. It would become an underground hit in 1974, thanks in part to Deadcast buddy Alan Arkesh, who, as it turns out, edited the trailer we just heard. The soundtrack had been out in the UK starting in the summer of 72, so it's possible an imported copy made it over. Or maybe the idea of reggae was just generally wafting its way to Stinson Beach. But to my ears, it's also possible that Road Jimmy only took on a reggae influence after it was written. For some contrast, here's how it sounded on Garcia's solo demo, recorded in January 1973. One tiny thing to note here is one of the song's only lyric changes from its earliest versions. On an early draft in the Ice Nine files, as well as this demo and the first performance, it's a glass shack, not a grass shack. Don't hang your head and let the two turn on. Glass shack nailed to the pine wood floor. Ask the time, baby, I don't know. Come back, baby, and let it show. And here's how the groove felt on February 9th when they debuted the song on stage at Maples Pavilion at Stanford. Don't hang your head and let the two time roll. Glass shack nailed to a pine wood floor. Ask the time, baby, I don't know. Come back later, gonna let it show. It slowed down a tiny bit between the demo and the dead debut, but both have much faster feels than later versions. A superb explanation of Roe Jimmy's groove and what's so odd about it can be found in drummer Bill Kreutzmann's memoir, Deal, where he calls the song a personal favorite. It was really difficult to get a grip on it at first, he writes. It has a slow tempo, which makes it seem like it would be easy, but it calls for a slight reggae groove layered over a ballad. Rhythmically, the lengths aren't traditional. They're not just twos and fours. It's deceiving. Basically, you have to play the song in halftime with a double-time bounce on top. It's trickier than it sounds. Let's listen to that debut version from February again. Here's my half a dollar if you dare 
the double time bounce is in the kick drum, giving it a pretty different feel that doesn't imply reggae to my ears. I hear Road Jimmy not as an attempt to integrate reggae, but another chain in Jerry Garcia's songwriting, looking for a new groove the dead could sink their teeth into. It almost feels like the next iteration of Tennessee Jed. I hear the connection in the faster, earlier versions of both of those songs. Here's a brisk Tennessee Jed from Chicago, October 22nd, 1971. Now Dave's Picks 3. And here's Ramble on Rose from that same night. not sequels so much as a series of rhythmic ideas. The common thread is that they seem like new grooves conceived for the purpose of being fun to play, and the suspicion that probably the dead would bring something unexpected and cool to them, then matched accordingly with Robert Hunter lyrics. Last episode, we discussed Keith Godshow's Let Me Sing Your Blues Away, a song as harmonically complex as it was rhythmically straightforward. Musicologist Sean O'Donnell from the City College of New York had a different reaction to Road Jimmy. I mean, for me, I find so appealing as a listener and so difficult trying to think of it as a musician is it seems to be moving in multiple temporal realms. It's like in slow motion, but it also has a quicker lilt in there also. It's kind of mind-blowing in its time sense. And that's really what's new about it, because harmonically, that'd be sort of the opposite of the God Show tune. Here are just some regular chords moving in fairly typical rock progressions, but it's in molasses. When Garcia recorded his demo, he wasn't quite sure if the song was done yet. Though it contains all of Robert Hunter's lyrics, no more, no less, Garcia also plays through a segment where he seems to leave room for another verse. Or maybe it's just a placeholder for the slide guitar solo to come. In addition to the two layered pulses, there are other complications. As Sean points out, and Kreutzmann hints at in his book, the verses are 13 bars each, except for the first, which is 14, to accommodate the intro riff. And then the solos. We'll let Scott Metzger explain them. The form of the solos is so, again, it's so bizarre, you know? It's like these tunes do not play themselves. Like, you have to know the form of the solos on Road Jimmy in order to get through it. You kind of can't fake your way through it. You know, you got to know because the bars are very crooked, so to speak. Like there's some bars of four, there's some bars of three, a couple of bars of two. By the end of the first tour, the feel had shifted slightly with the kick drum in halftime thickening the molasses. Here's what one of those solos sounds like from Salt Lake City on February 28th, 1973. 
Now Dix picks 28. there and just listen to Joe Jimmy and counted like one, two, three, four over the solo section, it would not line up. It eventually lines up, but in the middle of it, there's all these crooked moments where the bars are landing in unexpected places. even slower by the spring, going from 60 BPM down to 50, if you count it at the halftime tempo. And this is where I hear the reggae start to come out, especially in Bob Weir's guitar part. This is from the May 26th version at Kizar Stadium on the Here Comes Sunshine box set. By July, it's safe to say Jerry Garcia had at least heard the soundtrack to The Harder They Come. from Live at Keystone by Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders, recorded a few weeks before the Wake of the Flood sessions, one of their first versions of the Jimmy Cliff song, which would become a Garcia staple for the next two decades. And as sure as the sun will shine Gonna get my share What's mine And then the heart Garcia would later cover Sitting in Limbo, and much later, Johnny Too Bad, tying it with Planet Waves for the most songs in Garcia's later songbook. In some ways, though, the issue isn't when Jerry Garcia absorbed reggae, but when his bandmates did. My guess is that the Dead's collective discovery of reggae helped them clarify the groove that Garcia had conceived for Road Jimmy, which would become a durable part of the Dead's songbook for the rest of their career. And in the bigger picture, it doesn't matter at all what Road Jimmy owes to reggae. Like Robert Hunter's lyrics, the groove is pretty durable. And no matter when they discovered reggae, they certainly weren't trying to imitate it anyway. And this is the other slippery part of Road Jimmy that we've been studiously avoiding until just now. What's it all about? Come on, way to go. 
roughly five gazillion times when David Gans has saved our collective tuchus. And today we've got another one. David interviewed Robert Hunter over a pair of sessions in 1977 for BAM, now collected in his book Conversations with the Dead, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast. Thanks to the magic of David's tape recorder, we've got a whole lot of Robert Hunter today, talking about his lyric writing and Road Jimmy especially. So much that I'm going to take the honor and opportunity to welcome Robert Hunter to the Deadcast to talk about not only what a few songs mean, but how they mean. Some of them are trying to make sense and others of them are just dreams. You know, and sometimes I communicate dreams and sometimes I fail to communicate a dream and it doesn't make sense either. And that song kind of goes off into limbo unless it has a really good beat to it, in which case people say, well, I can't hear the words, but it sounds good. David asked Hunter where Road Jimmy came from and got what seemed to be a fairly straightforward answer. At first, please hold your takes about how this all applies to Road Jimmy until you make your way through this whole section of the episode. David was a bit off mic and some of the questioning happened mid-conversation, so I'll stand in for those parts, just following David's line of questioning. Road Jimmy, that's just chronicling uh, in a somewhat surrealistic way a time when I left San Cristobal. New Mexico and took off walking. I was going to walk to Denver and I walked all day and indeed walked a hole through my boots and uh, found I'd walked the wrong direction. I'd walked to Taos. Walked all day. So then I turned around hitchhiked off to Denver from there. But I don't know, it's kind of the sort of things that would go through your head when you run away or whatever it was I was doing. I was leaving. I had no reason to be in New Mexico anymore. And I had no place to go from there, particularly. And I just had a hankering to go on the road. We're, of course, going to let Robert Hunter continue this seemingly true story and add two notes. The first is to gently remind you to hold those takes. Memory can be a fascinating thing sometimes. The second is to add that this particular trip out of New Mexico took place in the late summer of 1967, the end of the so-called Summer of Love back in San Francisco, and was, at least in some tellings, precipitated by Hunter mailing several sets of lyrics to his friend Jerry Garcia, and Garcia telling him to get himself to San Francisco to become the Grateful Dead's new lyricist. However it unfolded, it wasn't a direct journey. I had 20 bucks, a uh, copy of Don Quixote, and my black Stuart scarf, and I had thrown my glasses away a couple of months before I was determined that I would see. So I couldn't see. I had holes in my boots, a copy of Don Quixote. No shit, walked the wrong way all day. <laughs> I tried to sleep under a railroad trestle in a ditch, and uh, there was no sleeping. You know, as the sun went down, the, it started getting very cold and big juicy mosquitoes and everything. I was pretty exhausted. I got up and hitchhiked half the way to Denver, I guess, and uh, cop stopped me. He said, look, I'm not going to arrest you. You could get arrested for hitchhiking there. He said, we just have to feed you, you know, and go off and don't let me catch any more. The story takes a turn that sounds like it could be from an early Bob Dylan press bio. Finally, I got picked up around Pikes Peak by a carnival truck. Yes, I did. <laughs> they asked me if I wanted to join the carnival, and of course I wanted to join the carnival. It was a big truck. It said Haunted House on the back. So we got into Denver, and it was storming and miserable, and I only had a dollar and 75 cents left. The guy dropped me off there, and the carnival was setting up in town the next day, and I couldn't find the phone number to get in touch with him in order to get over and get on that trip. And the carnival was out of town, set up and out of town before I knew it. I missed the carnival and got hung up in Denver for a month. 
It was a circuitous route back to the Bay Area. Hitchhiked up through Laramie out to Salt Lake City. I had a blowout going 100 miles an hour, right front blowout, driving this car in Wyoming. That was quite an experience. We're going to skip a few parts. In still a different telling of the story, sometime after Denver, Hunter made it through Reno and with the help of a slot machine, parlayed a nickel into enough coinage to call Garcia at 710 Ashbury and tell him he was on his way. He eventually made it back to California just before Labor Day 1967. Then out to Palo Alto again where I ran into Phil directly and he said, hey man, uh, we're going up to uh, Rio Nido, Russian River, to play and we're doing alligator and uh, China cat sunflower. I said, wow. So I came up. I'd sent them the lyrics for that from New Mexico. I went up and wrote the first half of Dark Star that day. So I've got right to work, you know, as soon as I fell right into it. It was all happening. What's remarkable is that Robert Hunter was willing to then explain to David how his trip from New Mexico to the Bay Area fed into Roe Jimmy. Keep holding the takes. That song is leaving New Mexico and walking through the desert. But the image in my mind, because what I'm doing when I'm leaving there chronologically that morning is I am taking my first totally committed step onto the road where I've decided that I've put it off long enough. I have no more business here and it's time to go on the road because it seemed to me that everyone was supposed to do that at the time, including me, and I did it. And I just, you know, cut completely loose, and I went on the road. And I jumped in the air, in other words. Now the question is, what can you make out of being on the road? You know, can I double twist while I'm in the air? Can I make something of this, you know, a figure? Can, can I make an impression on my mind? Is something here that's going to last, It's going to do something to my character, or whatever? Make me hipper, wiser, whatever. What about this part? Come on home where you belong And don't you run off no more That's a uh, injunction, you know, that's put in into you by a... Uh, you have no place on the road. And, and what you learn on the road is that you have no place on the road. You know, get back home is the message of the road. Get back home and make one, find a home, you know. But the road is the wanderer, and this is a place that people have to go through to find where they belong and to situate there and then spread roots out. Far out. Here, David pointed out that some of the images that Hunter was describing pertaining to Road Jimmy could also apply to Mississippi Half-Step. Listen closely for the sound of a light bulb going off over Robert Hunter's head. Well, as a matter of fact, that's uh, the song I was talking about. I wasn't talking about Road Jimmy at all. And I gave you a pretty convincing explanation, didn't I? Oh, that's very different. Okay, and those, <laughs> those two tunes, they're both in the same album, aren't they? Yes, sir. Mississippi Half-Step and Ro Jimmy are both on Wake of the Flood, sir. Well, okay, then it's, it's easy to see that they're all part of the same consciousness of that time that I was involved in. 
All of which is to say that Hunter's whole story about hitchhiking happened, more or less, and it did get channeled into a Grateful Dead song. Another way of putting that is to mentally project that whole story back two episodes and attach it in your mind to Mississippi Half-Step. If all you've got to live for is what you left behind Get yourself a powder charge and seal that Hey, I can interpret is my problem, man. I can interpret things. You know, I'm a Kabbalist almost, and I don't know anything about the Kabbalah, but, you know, hand me a copy like that, I'll tell you what it means. I can even interpret Robert Hunter lyrics. Throw me another. Okay, how about we do Ro Jimmy now? Actually, amid all of that, they did get pretty deep into Ro Jimmy, using its dreamlike lyrics as a stand-in for Hunter's lyric as a whole. The song actually contained two sets of Hunter's lyrics fused together. Ro Jimmy wrote the original idea was how long Jack till we get to Singapore how long Joe did we sign on for better keep bailing while the rain pours down the day crews sleeping and the night crews drowned and then the chorus is Ro Jimmy Ro gonna get there I don't know and I lifted that out of this other context and put it in there that other context was a song called Fair to Even Odds in his lyric collection A Box of Rain Hunter notes that it was written concurrently with Friend of the Devil, which would place the first seed of the Ro Jimmy chorus in early 1970. Hunter would occasionally perform a fragment as a prelude to Ro Jimmy in his solo shows, and you can hear how the keep on bailing motif connected the hard luck sailor and fair to even odds to the hard luck sailor in the chorus of Ro Jimmy. This is from June 19, 1980, in London. Gotta keep it while the rain pours down. The day crew's sleeping, and the night crew's drowned. How long, Jack, till we get where we're going to? How long, Jimmy, did we sign on for? I just keep bailing, the rain pours down. The day crew's sleeping, and the night crew's drowned. Later. Pete Sears of Jefferson Starship and a gazillion other Bay Area bands set the lyrics to music for his 2000 solo album, The Long Haul, if you'd like to hear the rest of how it goes. Thanks to Alex Allen for pointing out these connections. We've linked to Alex's pages at dead.net slash deadcast. How long, Jack, till we get to Singapore? How long, Joe, did we sign on for? Better keep bailing while the rain falls down. Grow Jimmy is a pretty dreamlike song to me, but Hunter's clarification of a central image here helps me ground the frame of the song a little more. I like my little setups and that the characters. I like Julie catch a rabbit by the hair, come back step like to walk on air. That's a whole song in itself. Then there's another song, look at Julie down below, Levi doing the do paso. That's another little thing. Well, here's my half dollar if you dare double twist when you hit the air. David asked what it meant to hit the air. I'm jumping down. Oh, I didn't make that clear. Come back step like to walk on air, get back. Yeah, well, it has this image, I guess, of jumping from the levee. Although, actually, I guess I, I, I fancy a higher jump. 
Placing the whole song in the wilderness around a levee over a river, somewhere at the outskirts of town, grounds the song somewhat. Here's Julie doing this, you know, she's, can you double twist when you hit the air? You know, it's a kind of, you know, what do you do when you face the void? You know, do paso. <laughs> I know, some kind of movement. And what's a do paso? Do paso is a square dance movement. There's a do sa do and a do paso, and uh, like that, square dancing. So I think on a do paso, uh, instead of going around like this, I think you uh, do it with another partner. I don't remember exactly what it is, no. Okay, the name of this call is do paso. The definition is turn your partner by the left, corner by the right, partner by the left. And if no other call is given, it ends in a courtesy turn. To dollar if you dare double twist and you hit the air is the main thrust of that is do you dare jump into the air at all? And once you've jumped in the air, are you going to have presence of mind enough to do a trick? I guess that there have been times in my life that I haven't really cared whether I communicated directly or not. I had this idea that the impressions that I had in myself, the emotional impressions, would communicate through my symbols in this case. And they would communicate the emotional impression that I wanted, which a person would relate to his own experience. And it wasn't my business to authentically detail the experiences that led up to it, but rather to give impressions. And those impressions, although can like relate to no one but myself. jumping from the levee provides a central image to the song. But I've always held on to that last verse and this next bridge as providing parallel keynotes of longing that can focus Ro Jimmy emotionally for me. The first is to just think about it as a breakup song. The second is to look at it through a desire for the departed past. Not necessarily a nostalgia, but an acknowledgement that something is irretrievably gone. Maybe it's the world visible in the rearview mirror of the car that Keith Godshow is driving in Let Me Sing Your Blues Away while blasting the new radio-powered Top Ten. That's the way it's been in town Ever since they tore the jukebox down Much 
However you'd like to think about Road Jimmy, it provides a lot of space to do that, drifting over the seven-minute mark at its slow, weird pace on the album version. By the time they got to the record plant to make Wake of the Flood in August 1973, they'd performed it at virtually every show that year to date, nearly three dozen times. They set to tracking the song on Friday, August 10th, the last day of the first week of sessions. It was perhaps the easiest of the whole album. Three, four... If you'll notice on the new edition of The Angel Share, there's barely two minutes worth of Road Jimmy. Julie, catch a rabbit by his head. We just heard a little bit of the incomplete first take, which Garcia stops for no obvious reason. Let's do another one. One thing to observe is that Keith Godshow is playing some kind of organ. Grateful that archivist David Lemieux. He's kind of moving away from, at least on the album, from the, the grand piano. And there there is, there's a lot of electric sounds coming out of Keith's fingers, and they're really, really good. Brian Kehu is the engineer who got the Angel Share recordings into shape. It's kind of a standout on these records because it changes their vibe in a way to a different thing. And I, you know, I can see where they wanted to be one foot in the past, but also modern. It does keep them up with what's happening at the time, maybe even a little bit ahead of it, too, because they're not going for space rock, hawk wind, you know, type of synthesizer sounds. They're going for very musical ones, which makes more sense, but it does have a little less feel of the foot in the past that they always tend to keep. The track sheet for Ro Jimmy reveals that the keyboard sound for the song is actually a combination of two keyboards, a farfisa, the same kind of good old combo organ that Pigpen played during the Dead's early days. The other is a clavinet, perhaps the famous D6 model introduced in the early 70s, heard most clearly on the bridge. In the spring of 1973, Keith Godshow had added a Fender Rhodes to his stage setup, and he plays on the studio version of Row Jimmy, overdubbed onto the final take. And I say Get out, run, run, run. 
never played any kind of electric organ on stage before the sessions. Brian Kehoe knows from keyboards. One of his other gigs is as the touring keyboard tech, an occasional fill-in keyboardist for The Who. I think it's important to note for keyboard players that electric piano, real piano, they have this touch control that's about as important as the notes you play. And a Hammond organ doesn't. Any kind of organ is a very fixed volume. So if you pound on it harder, it doesn't change the levels. But on a piano, an electric piano, or a clavinet even, you can play softer, louder with just your finger control. And that's a very important part of your expression. So for him, it must have been weird to have a synthesizer show up that just plays a stiff C minor chord or a G chord, and it doesn't do anything but just hold that steady note. So it's kind of limiting in a way, but it does add a new color, which many people felt was very exciting and interesting. But it feels electronic against what they're doing. Whereas a Hammond organ, given its nature, sounds a lot more organic. I do find it a bit of a strange call to have Keith play it live in the studio and not overdub it later. But it does add more of a reggae touch, though filtered through slightly fancier keyboards. Though he'd experiment with a B3 on stage in the fall of 1973, it never made it to Road Jimmy. Take two of Road Jimmy was also incomplete. Just a groove setting. Let's get that groove steady for a while. It's rushed a little. On take three, they made it through a complete version. Someone asks if they're going to attempt a fourth, and Garcia poses a fine question. What was wrong with that? Like me, musicologist Sean O'Donnell loves the way Weir's rhythm guitar part ties the room together. One of the most beautiful parts in listening to the record again is Bob's sort of pizzicato background. And it's it's amazing part of this time sense, like how all the parts create the whole for, for this song. In the chorus, his little pizzicato palm muted with his right hand is just really, it's just perfect. Don't hang your head and let the two times go. Grass sack nailed to a pinewood floor. The instrumental parts would all be like fragments of a tune. So in some ways, it's them hitting their stride as like a chamber music group here at this record. There's bits of Here Comes Sunshine that are like that, too, where it's the composite that really holds it together. Ask the time, baby, I don't know. Come back later, gonna show. Something else that's worth mentioning here about Road Jimmy and reggae in the summer of 1973 in general. Homegrown Jamaican pop music had been born in part from the enormous sound systems that thrived in Kingston starting in the late 1950s, evolving through a variety of styles before becoming reggae. The sound systems continued to evolve too, a fixture of Jamaican music, and sometimes emigrated from Jamaica along with their owners. 
Row Jimmy, which may or may not have been influenced by reggae, was recorded on Friday, August 10th in Sausalito. The next day, Saturday, August 11th, the Dead went back to the record plant for some more work. And across the country in the Bronx, one place where reggae had definitely taken root, a Jamaican-born teenager nicknamed Cool Herc DJed what would become known as the founding party of hip-hop. Apache by the incredible bongo band definitely wasn't reggae, but it sounded next level when getting blasted from an imported Jamaican sound system. Jamaican music would transform American music in the next half decade and take deeper root in and around the dead, though in pretty different ways than in the Bronx. In August 1973, it was obvious there were new grooves in the air. Besides Keith Godshow's clavinet, there aren't a whole lot of overdubs on Road Jimmy, but I'll note that the vocals are especially sweet. And I say Welcome back, Mrs. Donna Jean Godshow McKay. One of the things that I loved singing with the Grateful Dead about was the fact that so much of the vocals, it's not like background vocals. It's ensemble singing. There were background vocals on certain songs and certain parts, but a great deal was ensemble singing. I mean, you take Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, and you've got ensemble singing on so many of those songs. And it translated as well to the next era that included Wake of the Flood and Mars Hotel and Blues for Allah and just a lot of ensemble singing. And that was really fun. have to work on the harmonies. But I had been singing harmony since I was six years old. And so that wasn't a real struggle for me. But it was, you know, taking it into a group format and knowing where the tone of your voice is going to fit in within the chord structure and determining all of that between three people. So that's fun. That's fun figuring that stuff out. always so much fun doing vocals with Jerry and Bobby. Every time we encircled that microphone, it dissolved into a comedy routine. And they were both so funny. And we would laugh and laugh and laugh. And we had the best time around the microphones in the studio.
Robert Hunter himself was a little skeptical about the album version, telling WLIR in 1978 that he thought it was maybe a little bit too slow. As always, sorry about the cruddy audio quality, and all love to the deadheads who preserved this. I think some of the problem is with the choice of tempos on uh, tunes like uh, Ray Jimmy Rowe is a good example of a tune which works very, very well at that tempo stage because with all the power, they can just get the place, you know, rocking slowly back and forth. And I don't really think it translates to the album at that tempo. A bit quicker would have moved it. Rowe Jimmy would stay a favorite in the repertoire. Though it would get slightly more rare in the later 70s and early 80s, the band's road hiatus year of 1975 would be the only year it didn't get played at all. The definition of a durable tune. Unlike a few songs on Wake of the Flood, Road Jimmy would retain its core feel for the remainder of its time in the band's repertoire, though different eras of the song would highlight different parts of the song's dynamics. The song became a forum for Jerry Garcia's rare slide guitar playing. This is from November 17, 1973 in L.A., now Dave's Picks 5, one of many beautiful versions from those fall tours. remain an outlet for Garcia's slide. Usually, but not always. Here's Garcia describing it in 1981. Little Red Rooster and Row Jimmy Row are the only tunes that I really play slide on in. And even those, you know, partially, I sometimes I take the slide off and play a, a normal solo, say, in one of them, or, you know, nothing is hard and fast in the Grateful mm-hmm. Dead. Garcia's slide is one thing to keep an ear out for. The non-slide versions are a bit rare, like this one from June 22, 1973 in Vancouver, now on the Pacific Northwest box. Perhaps the slide got confiscated at the border. In practice, at least Bill Kreutzmann felt like it took a while to get the song in hand. Ballads used to scare me a little, he told Blair Jackson in 1989, because it's harder to find a groove on them. Not Stella Blue, which is pretty straight ahead, but on something like Road Jimmy, for instance, I just wasn't sure the band had the groove on it, or maybe I just didn't have it in my heart. But I've learned how to deal with it, and now I'll just sit right in the middle of the quarter beats. I used to feel hesitant about certain songs because I didn't think we could just jump into the feeling. the May 8, 1977 version, what the song sounded like with Mickey Hart back in the fold, the reggae coming out even more. Unlike some of the more progressive songs from the Wake of the Flood era, Garcia's rhythmic concept made it a good fit for the double drummer dead, giving them room to play. You can hear Keith Godshow playing around with his new polymoog, moving it slightly closer to the original sound on the album.
Brent Midland would embrace the expanded keyboard colors more in the 1980s. David Lemieux. Brent did some beautiful things on it. There was a lot of space in that song. It wasn't in your face the whole time. There was a lot of quiet moments. And in those spaces, rather than, you know, a lot of bands would just fill those spaces. All six guys would fill it with sound. The Dead didn't do that. So when it was Brent's turn to fill some of those spaces, I loved it. Midland even sometimes took a solo of his own before Garcia's second. This is from Truckin' Up to Buffalo, July 4th, I even remember seeing Weir quite a few times when they would do it, he'd hold his guitar like he was rowing during the quiet part at the end. And when it got that little shuffle going at the end, just really, really exceptional. Just loved it. One thing I like about the later versions is how the outro chorus of the song developed its own dynamics. The first pass through was a sing-along. And I see row. Then, leaning into the reggae feel, this one is from March 26, 1990 at Nassau Coliseum, now in the spring 1990 box, like so. And then the final choruses became a place for the band to hang ornamentation. Not quite soloing, not quite jamming. Listen to what Bruce Hornsby is playing here. This is from View from the Vault 2, June 14, 1991. Jimmy is a classic example of a song staying the same while the Grateful Dead changed around it. To demonstrate, and maybe get a new perspective on the song's evolution, we've assembled a supercut version. A few seconds from the earliest takes, starting with Jerry's home demo, an early live version, and the Wake of the Flood recording, followed by a little bit from each year the song was in rotation. It might be a little bumpy. I'll read off the dates afterwards, but it's fascinating to hear it evolve from the original conception through its different textures and feels around the pulse.
ever since they tore the jukebox down. Jupiter peace don't find no more. Not so much as it done before. And I see standalone video with a full link of dates and venues at dead.net slash deadcast. But we started with Jerry's solo demo from January 1973, the debut at Stanford on February 9th, RFK Stadium on June 10th, 1973, the wake of the flood version, Boston Garden on June 28th, 1974, Boston Music Hall on June 10th, 1976, Winterland on June 8th, 1977, MacArthur Court in Eugene on January 22, 1978, Oakland Auditorium Arena on December 28, 1979, NASA Coliseum on May 16, 1980, Hartford Coliseum on May 11, 1981, Madison Square Garden on September 20, 1982, Worcester Centrum on October 20, 1983, Niagara Falls Convention Center on April 17, 1984, Saratoga Performing Arts Center on June 25, 1985, Oakland Coliseum on December 16, 1986, Hartford Civic Center on March 26, 1987, Oxford Plains Speedway in Maine on July 2, 1988, Buffalo on July 4, 1989, NASA Coliseum on March 26, 1990, RFK Stadium on June 14, 1991, 
Oakland Coliseum on December 16, 1992, Madison Square Garden on September 20, 1993, Nassau Coliseum on March 23, 1994, and Portland Meadows on May 28, 1995, the very last version. And after The Grateful Dead, Road Jimmy wasn't going anywhere. The first recorded reggae cover arrived on the Fire on the Mountain tribute in 1996, sung by Bob Marley collaborator Judy Mowat. Truly catch a rabbit by its ear. Come back stepping like you're walking on ear. Fish's Trey Anastasio has done it, one of the few dead tunes he's done outside his collaborations with members of the dead themselves. Indie folkies The Decemberists have done it too, recording it on their 2011 EP, Long Live the King. Jimmy is too weird to be a standard exactly. Like Robert Hunter's lyrics, it's a dream, ready for dreaming. We'll end with one more quote from David Gans's 1977 conversation with Hunter. Not necessarily about Roe Jimmy, but not necessarily not about Roe Jimmy either. You know, I really, do, I really, really would, would prefer not to get into tearing apart the symbology of my own songs, and I'll tell you why. Because symbols are evocative. They, uh, if there were a more definite way to say things than with the symbols, then you'd say it that way. Thanks very much for tuning in to the good old Grateful Dead cast. We'd like to thank our guests in this episode, Donna Jean Godshow McKay, Robert Hunter, David Lemieux, Brian Kehue, Sean O'Donnell, and Scott Metzger. Extra special thanks to friend of the Dead cast, David Gans, for contributing audio from his interview archive. So great to hear that extensive interview with Robert Hunter. Thanks very much for tuning in. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share an episode on your social media. And give us your Wake of the Flood-related stories by recording yours over at stories.dead.net. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.